when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' weekly discussion on what's going on in Westminster. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the fiasco over the Windrush generation and Britain's migration system. Plus, we'll be chatting over whether a second Brexit referendum is in any way a good idea. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, chief economics commentator Martin Wolfe, deputy comment editor Miranda Green, plus Sunder Catwaller from the British Future Think Tank. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe to all the usual channels to receive it automatically every Saturday morning. It has been one of the worst weeks for Theresa May's government since the general election. A round of reports in The Guardian about the status of people from the Windrush generation resulted in some questions about what is going on with Britain's migration system. Paperwork was destroyed by the Home Office that gave these Caribbean migrants their status within the UK. It's raised a lot of questions about whether Theresa May's, quote, hostile environment was to blame. George Parker, let's begin with unpacking where this story began on Monday. So Amelia Gentleman, an investigative reporter at The Guardian, has been digging into these cases and reported um, British citizens who weren't getting health treatment, who were being threatened with deportation, who were losing their jobs, and was asking how did this all happen. And it was all to do with the Windrush generation, which was half a million Caribbean migrants who came to Britain after the Second World War, but were never formally naturalised as British citizens. And it's all a bit of a mess. Uh, yes, a mess is uh, certainly an understatement. I think it's been an absolute shambles from the government. As you say, Amelia Gentleman in The Guardian deserves a lot of credit for bringing these cases to public attention. But unfortunately, it didn't seem to bring the cases to the attention sufficiently of the Home Secretary or the Prime Minister. And as a result, a story which has been running in The Guardian for quite a few months now suddenly erupted right in the middle of a Commonwealth summit and a total public relations disaster. The timing literally couldn't have it, it been couldn't worse. Have been worse. And you, you ended up with the, with the Home Secretary having admitting that her own department had behaved in an appalling fashion towards these people. Uh, and Theresa May, who having initially appeared to refuse to meet Caribbean prime ministers to discuss this problem, then ended up inviting them all into Number 10 Downing Street and issuing a, a grovelling apology on behalf of the government. And as you say, on behalf of the Home Office, which she ran for six years between 2010 and 2016, when the culture was embedded into the Home Office, that you basically started harassing people you believe to be illegal immigrants, which may well be one way of dealing with illegal immigration, but it's certainly not the way to deal with people who were fully entitled to be in this country. They came along as children of people we invited into this country to help rebuild the economy after the Second World War. And it's managed to unite the whole political spectrum in absolute horror about what's happened to this country from The Guardian right through to the Daily Mail. It was one of those odd times when, as an FT leader writer, I found myself writing an editorial this week which was agreeing with the Daily Mail, which doesn't happen very often. Um, Sunder Cadwalla, this obviously, the view has been from the media that there's been a big lack of empathy in our immigration system. And as George said, this atmosphere that was created, which was reflecting public mood at that time, I think it's fair to say that in 2010... 
there was a mood that you know migration needs to come down the government was trying to do that but the fact that the home office took such a heartless and also hapless attitude towards the windrush generation that it just something needs to drastically change about how we deal with migration in britain It does. I think uh, the Prime Minister, formerly the Home Secretary, has very strong views about immigration that she believes are what the public want. And she's not wrong that people want control, but she's always misunderstood the balance of public opinion on migration, that people want control and compassion and decency, and they don't think you have to choose. And so she's rather tougher um, with people who, of course, are the Windrush Britons. She's apologising to other governments for them, came here legally as children under the law at the time. There's missing paperwork the Home Office never asked them for, they never kept, and now losing jobs being denied cancer treatment, being threatened with deportation in a country you've always lived in when you've always believed you're British. That's why it's so egregious to get this very broad coalition. The other point about the time, it's the 50th anniversary of Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech. How many times have we heard Conservatives say, you know, we share the values of people of faith who go to the black churches, um, but they've just we've got this baggage of Enoch Powell and Norman Tebbit. Well, you know, they've made major strides on race, but they've created new baggage for the next 10 years. So doing this properly and sorting it out is so important. They're not sorting it out yet. They're putting new capacity in to help people get the paperwork. If we knew you came here legally as a child, why do we want four pieces of evidence for every year of your life? Why don't we just give you the status that you need and then have the broader debate about the culture of immigration? That seems the obvious thing, George, as Sunder said, the idea that these, you know, it could have been so easy to solve and Amber Rudd has now announced she's setting up a task force to try and get through all these cases and we still don't know how many they are because we know there were half a million people came under uh, the Windrush generation but we don't know how many affected by this residency problem and there's been a general sense that the Home Office just has no grip on this situation. Well I think that's certainly true and um, the start of the week you had the Immigration Minister Caroline Noakes saying she didn't know whether any of these people had been deported or not whether they'd been deported by mistake. I mean, anyone who's worked in the Home Office will tell you that, you know, thinking about John Reed's comments in the late 2000s about being not fit for purpose, have things really changed that much? You know, we had this episode also revealed this week that the Home Office had destroyed the landing slips, which would have showed that these people, when they arrived in Britain, they destroyed them. They hadn't bothered to transfer the data onto a computer system, which might have helped them actually prove their right to be in the country. Um, so the whole thing is... Uh, is a shambles. And unfortunately, uh, as Amber Rudd, current Home Secretary, said this week, the problems really started on, on Theresa May's watch. And this is interesting why you very rarely get Home Secretaries who become Prime Ministers, because the department, as you said, is just a nest of things that basically want to end your political career, because it's pretty much every controversial and difficult policy areas all in one department and so because she was there for six years and had you know she was very reforming in the home office but also took a very clear line it's going to be problematic for her for many years to come I think. Amber Rudd should be a reformer in the Home Office. Obviously, it's hard when the boss is is the former <laughs> boss, but I think since the, since the general election, actually, she's had the chance to step up. Uh, we shouldn't get into the position of saying you can never fix the Home Office. It will always be a disaster. The Home Office has actually been doing a couple of things well. It's done Syrian resettlement 
well in a way that has been good um, and has been very different from the way we treat asylum seekers and refugees. They were very slow to make a guarantee to EU nationals and yet they've been designing a system that is uh, miles apart from the 85 pages and every time you took the Eurostar, it's, you, you know, you check your passports there, we ch- the government goes for the proof and we do it. So there's massive mistrust in the Home Office but they've been doing these things well where they say because this group is different the EU nationals will behave as if they are clients, customers, and people, as if we'll behave like we never behave mm. when we're the toughest department. Turning the Home Office into a normal culture of a department that is actually trying to work with the people it's working for is an incredibly big task, and actually we need to get that to happen. Yes, well, I think that's a very interesting point. A lot of people are asking, why did these officials dealing with these cases not basically have a heart? Why didn't they treat these people as human beings? And I think it's a very interesting facet of the culture that developed in the Home Office during Theresa May's tenure as Home Secretary, leading up to the Immigration Act of 2014, when this hostile environment was introduced, where suspected illegal migrants had to prove that they were entitled to be in the country before they got a job or a driving license or a bank account. Now, in 2011, Theresa May had basically forced out of office Brody Clark, the former head of the Border Force, who had showed some discretion, had showed some common sense. When three-hour queues built up at our airports, because he was being asked to check every single passport, he started waving people through. He used his discretion. Uh, he was using what he thought was in sort of targeted sort of checks on people's passports. And he was sacked for his pains. Now, if you're the head of the Border Force and Theresa May sacks you for using your discretion and a bit of common sense, for every other official in the department, you think, oh, my God, I've got to stick to the rules, to the letter of the rules. It's a tick box exercise and discretion is not allowed, basically. Just to come back to your point, and you, your think tank British Future has done a lot of research on what British attitudes towards migration are. You know, what? Do you think people actually want Oton? Because the whole Windrush thing in Theresa May's environment comes to this fundamental question of we're leaving the EU, we're going to have full control of border policy for the first time in decades, and there's going to have to be some kind of reset. And another question for the Home Office is what's going on there that there's an immigration bill due at some point which is going to define this new regime once we've left the EU which has been delayed we've learnt this week again so what do you think the government should be aiming for? Well, this crazy situation where it sometimes feels as if we're going to talk about everything about Brexit, regulations Northern Ireland and fish mm. and we'll never quite get round to talking mm. about immigration which was so central. The public have been frustrated because the governments both governments lost the confidence of the public by not having a grip not expecting the EU flows we saw and then making promises they couldn't keep on net migration. And so the politicians are somewhat scared of the public and yet the public have rather balanced views. If there was control, they'd want it with compassion and decency. They're actually very open to skilled migration, less keen on low-skilled migration. We've seen a very interesting outbreak of unity, possibly in the Cabinet, where it turns out that Michael Gove and Boris Johnson are quite liberal on migration, really, (laughs) if we can have some control and they might be secretly on the side of Amber Rudd and Philip Hammond. And there might be something we could say to the Europeans, which is that should we discuss uh, an immigration system that gives the public the control they want, it's relatively open to Europeans. There's actually a public permission for that if they believed you had a grip on the system. But all of these chaotic disasters make people ever less confident that the government knows what it's doing. And this is the whole concept of control, right? And that was why the Brexit referendum went leave, that people felt it didn't have control over so many areas. And I think immigration borders was probably the number one thing. And one thing we have seen, George, is 
the big debate about this infamous tens of thousands target this week, which Damien Green, who <laughs> recently was the de facto deputy prime minister, but further back in history, was the Conservative Party's immigration spokesman and allegedly made this target by mistake in a TV interview, which then <laughs> stuck and the party never got away from it. And I think that played a big part into what Sunder was saying, that they said, we'll get migration back down to the tens of thousands and never came anywhere near it. That's right. Well, the, the reason that Damien Green's interview quote was turned into a government policy, a disastrous government policy, it turned out, was it was intended to convey the sense that the government had a target and was going to take control, but ended up as the sort of motif of how little control the government had. And, you know, I think looking ahead to Brexit, I think the interesting thing is, you know, there are estimated three million EU citizens in the UK who will have to be registered in some shape or form by the Home Office if they want this right to settle in the country. Now, what we've seen with the Windrush case this week is quite a worrying sign when it comes to the prospect of the Home Office having to deal with these things. I was speaking to someone this week who said, well, they'll have to prove their residence in some way. Maybe it will be done digitally through an email. Maybe they'll be sending in some documents. Those documents are going to be piling up all over the place. We'll lose some for certain. You know, in any system, there are going to be a small number of cases where something goes wrong. People can't prove that they're in the right place. They lose a document. The Home Office makes a mistake. You've got three million people. It only takes, let's say, a thousand mistakes where European citizens are being harassed or are being detained or being deported. And the human interest stories around that, it's a potential PR disaster, I think. And it's another reason about the timing of this Windrush debacle. It's obviously terrible and cruel for the people involved. The British government is under a lot more pressure in negotiations with the EU27 about the promises that it's made. But I do think on this 50th anniversary of Enoch Powell's speech, you know, the, the, this idea we can't talk about immigration is so incredibly dangerous, actually. And it's the government now that is running away from an immigration debate. The public feel it's a reset moment. We need to change the culture. We need sensible and balanced controls that get the migration, the economy uh, needs and public services need. There is actually quite a lot of common sense out there about how to strike those balances. We've got a government that doesn't trust the public and is running away from the debate. I think one of the legacies of that Enoch Powell speech, which has been much debated and dissected over the past week, Sunday, has been that it really shut down the conversation, particularly for the Conservative Party, for a long time. And that still now, when we're looking through the, the Windrush thing, as soon as it happened, the op-eds were appearing saying, we've got to keep our hostile environment. And on the other end, the, you had the people arguing, we need to take a whole new approach, be much more liberal and that seems to be a big problem for Britain. It's not going away that you've got lots of people at the extremes on this, very few people in the middle who are saying the kind of things that we've just been talking about, a controlled system that still has some compassion. Most people are in the middle, but you have a very polarised debate. You might get a more polarised debate because of Brexit. We, we misremember the impact of Enoch Powell. Ted Heath was brave to sack him, but actually Ted Heath went and controlled immigration in 1971. As a result, Margaret Thatcher said we felt people felt swamped and she controlled immigration again. So actually, no one was going to do repatriation, which was a horrible, terrible, ghastly idea. But they tried to do immigration. What Powell never let us have was the debate about integration. Mm. He said it was impossible. He said people like me would never feel British. We'd have lost mm. one country and not gained another. They tried to control immigration Immigration, but we've we've done okay on integration. We haven't done anything about it. I think the Conservative Party has changed enormously. You know, you've got Community Secretary Sajid Javid saying Enoch was wrong, tells you a message. But it's still a bit scared, I think, about those difficult issues on race um, across society. On the political side of this week, George, obviously it's not been a good week for Theresa May. The Commonwealth was meant to be a 
big glorious thing for global Britain, showing how it was going to reconnect the world, forge new alliances with old friends and all that sort of thing, whereas instead all the questions and focus has been on the Windrush stuff as well. And at PMQs this week, Jeremy Corbyn could have had a big opportunity <laughs> here. And I remember as we came out of the chamber on Wednesday, it was clear he hadn't <laughs> quite done what he said. But again, it's just been sort of political tit for tat and it feels like nobody's come out of this whole thing well at all. No, I think that's true. I mean, as you said at the start that it was been one of Theresa May's worst weeks, but it's tempered by the fact that it's also been one of Jeremy Corbyn's worst <laughs> weeks as well. And it's actually rather dispiriting that we have an opposition party and a government, both of which are making such a hash of things, frankly, at the moment. I mean... Yes, it's been a terrible week for Theresa May. The optics at the Commonwealth Summit have been appalling. On the other hand, you know, Jeremy Corbyn failed to really nail this in the Commons. And he, at the same time, has been facing a lot of criticism from his own party over the way he's handled the Salisbury attack, the Syria attack. And, of course, a really emotional debate in the House of Commons this week on anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. So it's been a bad week for Theresa May, but I think it's been a bad week for Jeremy Corbyn too. And what do you think for Amber Rudd's future prospects? Because she is, as Sunder alluded to earlier, is very much on the liberal wing of the Conservative Party, a sort of continuity Cameron figure, if you like. But she's now, you know, she's going to be Home Secretary. I predict this will not be the first issue she's going to have to deal with like this over the next few years. Um, you know, and people have been saying, well, it doesn't really feel as if, again, if she's had a grip on this, and not least her junior minister, Caroline Noakes, who gave several contradicting interviews about what was going on with the Windrush case, Yes, I think that's I think that's true. I think um, Amber Rudd's risen basically in a four-year ministerial career. She's gone from being a junior minister to hold one of the great offices of state, standing in for the prime minister in live television debates in the general election. I mean, it's an astonishing rise, founded mainly on the fact that she's regarded as an incredibly cool under fire, safe pair of hands, competent, no nonsense, and all the rest of it. Now she's had a couple of blows in the last few weeks with the spike in knife crime that we've seen in London, especially and now with the Windrush generation. So it's definitely damaged her. Um, But I still think she's got some credit in the bank. And, you know, if you think about the next leadership contest, there's certainly going to be a Brexiteer on the shortlist of two. Um, Who's going to be the non-Brexiteer? Well, Amber Rudd, I still think, is in with a shout. Though, of course, other people are coming up on the rails. Another generation, people like Tom Tugendhat, for example, the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee. So it's not been a great week for her, but I don't think she's fatally damaged. There's still a lot of people in Britain who are not very happy with the idea of Brexit. We're into the year countdown now until the UK leaves the EU, but is there going to be a second referendum or a second vote or another opportunity for the British public to put their views forward on this crucial question? In his column this week, Martin Wolf argues that though he hates the idea of Brexit and still thinks it's not going to be very good for the UK, a second referendum would be even worse. So Martin Wolf, let's begin with this. You're obviously putting two sort of slightly different ideas forward here because a lot of people who are not very happy about Brexit, there's some names come to mind like Andrew Adonis for example, are very much pushing for another vote, another referendum before we leave the EU. You're saying this is a bad idea. Why? Well, let's put aside the reasons why some people think it's a bad idea, that it's sort of unconstitutional to the people have spoken and that's forever. I think that's absurd. The people are, of course, allowed to change their mind. As Uh, David Davis once said, it's the definition of a democracy to be able to change your mind. So there's no problem with that. You can also argue that we would by then know much more about the implications of leaving 
because we would have a negotiated withdrawal deal on the table by the later part of this year, which we didn't have. We had no idea what Brexit meant when we had the referendum. And of course, the world has changed. We know now that there is economic damage, not as bad as some fear, but still there's economic damage. And of course, Donald Trump's election has changed everything. It has made the whole idea even more horrible. So there are perfectly good reasons for wanting a referendum. I feel, however, that on balance, the arguments against are stronger. First, it's just incredibly difficult to see how we'd manage it. So let's suppose we've got this withdrawal deal in October and Parliament then says we can't throw it out because we've got the will of the people. So we've got to ask the people. So then we'd have to agree on the question, which is quite complicated. It's not just two way. It's a more complicated thing than that. And then we'd have to set up a plan for the referendum. We'd have to fund some campaigns in the referendum. Probably couldn't happen until January or February of just a month before the exit. So then let's say we say no. Then we go to the EU and say, actually, we've changed our mind. We don't want this withdrawal deal. And they'll then say, OK, you don't want the withdrawal deal. Goodbye. What happens then? Nobody has any idea what happens then. None at all. If it were a very close result, I think they would say quite plausibly, you don't really know your your mind on this. Why should we take this seriously? We don't want you in again. And then finally, crucially, I think, I think all the evidence suggests that a new referendum result will be very close like the old one. So suppose we have a 51 to 49 outcome saying we reject this deal. Is that going to end it? Is that going to be decisive? No, of course not. People will then say, well, let's have a third referendum. Because the fundamental point is we are a deeply divided society and no referendum now is going to give us any greater clarity. We've made this decision and I just don't see how we can get out of it plausibly and without even more damage to uh, the body politic than we've already done. Miranda Green, let's unpack a lot of those things. There's a lot to think about what Martin's argument he's put forward. First of all, has public opinion really changed that much? Because this is sort of the crucial question that there's so many numbers you go out and see. So, you know, there's this sense that we found last year's election, for example, the idea of the relievers, people who were Remain supporters, who became, you know, they accepted Brexit and were happy to get on with it. I think broadly speaking, polling numbers from YouGov do suggest that people are happy to get on with it. But on the other hand, there are some polling numbers that if you ask people, would you like to have a say on on the final deal, then they say, well, actually, yes, I would. So it's all a bit of a confusing picture. And then on top of that, you know, Dominic Cummings, who is the strategist behind Vote Leave, has said consistently, if there's another referendum, I am confident we will win this 60-40 and that the arguments we have will be much stronger, mostly because, as Martin said, the economic damage has been nowhere near as bad as, as people thought it was going to be. So it's a very confused picture to know what the British public think about this. It is a confused picture, but it's all going in the same same direction, which is a direction that backs up Martin's arguments against a second referendum, essentially. I think that, you know, a lot of the kind of confidence amongst those very, very hard core Remainers who want to rerun the whole thing and overturn it kind of evaporates when they look at some polling numbers. But they do seem to sort of seize on this idea that there's an appetite to have a say on the deal. My feeling is that it, the whole thing is rather doomed. But I have to say this, I think a lot of the kind of campaigning for a second referendum on the deal is actually part of a politically tactical 
campaign to try and end up with a softer deal and a closer relationship to the EU. So I don't actually believe a lot of them when they say that they're campaigning for a second referendum. I think they're trying to keep up pressure on the government to strike a somewhat sensible compromise deal in terms of the economic relationships. So I actually think that the entire conversation about a second referendum is a bit of a distraction and it's not what we should be focusing on, as Martin so rightly says. And therefore, all of these kind of micro rows you get about whether a second referendum is actually winnable for the Remain side and whether in Nick Clegg's rather unfortunate phrase that there's a kind of actuarial advantage for Remain, i.e. that young people will still be alive to vote and they're more pro-Remain. It's all by the by. The other thing is that the Labour Party, if there was a second referendum, would be in a terrible political bind because their tightrope between their Leave and Remain supporters would no longer hold the leadership up. And for that reason, the Labour Party would not go for a second referendum either. And that's particularly fascinating because one thing we have seen this week is the House of Lords voted for this amendment to mandate the government to you know basically stay in the customs you negotiate some kind of customs partnership we'll see where that goes in the commons next week but martin just to go back to some of the points you made at the beginning there you know you talk about how the geopolitical landscape has changed now i know brexit supporters will say actually it's changed in our favor because barack obama was the guy who said you'll be at the back of the queue we're not interested in doing a trade deal donald trump on the other hand is saying actually yes we want the biggest the best trade deal you've ever seen. He's also called for NATO members to pay more money into the budget, which are both British foreign policy aims. So is it as clear cut as that, that Trump is universally a bad thing for Britain? Well, nothing is ever clear cut in these in these sorts of things. One has to make one's own judgments. I think that doing a trade deal with the US will turn out to be, in fact, very difficult. And particularly if we want to remain close to Europe, we haven't even begun the EU, we haven't even begun to confront some of the demands that the US will make. We know that there will be demands in agriculture and in services from well, the US, we have to choose which between. will be really hard. And I mean, on the health services, I think quite possibly ones that the Labour Party wouldn't even look at. So the idea that it would be easy to do a deal, negotiating trade deals with a superpower is always difficult. And with the US, it's really difficult. Anybody who thinks somebody like Bob Lighthizer, who I know will be making very easy for us, is really fooling themselves. But I was making a broader geopolitical point. I think there's more to life than doing trade deals, much more, with countries which are much less important to us as trading partners than the EU. But the main issue I was making is it just seems to me the notion of a Western alliance in which the US is the player on which we can always rely, which will basically shape the geopolitics of the world to our advantage, just gone out of the window. And now I know Brexit has start with the assumption that Europeans are essentially loathsome and unreliable. But I'm afraid that if once you've got the US where it is now, they are our natural partners. And remaining very close to them, it seems to be a geostrategic necessity. And if we weaken Europe very seriously in this context, I think the only victor from that, in my view, is Russia. But I just wanted to come back to Miranda made one incredibly important point, which is, as I said at the end of my column, I do think the focus 
has to be on getting the best possible deal. The customs union and the best possible access to the marketing services is the core of that. I think the customs union increasingly seems to be the only way to solve the Irish problem, which is a really big problem. And we can't just walk away and say, we don't care what happens to Ireland. That's our responsibility, moral. We messed this place up. Let's be clear about this. So I don't mind if the pressure for a second referendum helps us there. But that's what we've got to focus on. And there is the final point, which I did stress in my column, which is, as a matter of fact, neither the Conservatives nor Labour are in a position to agree on a second referendum. It would tear them apart. I made it like this. I hate where the Labour Party is now, but it is where it is. And we are. Politics is always the art of the possible, however unpleasant. I think the other question that comes from this, Miranda, is even if the British scene did allow for this to happen, which is you've both explained why that is unlikely, would Europe even countenance it? Because obviously, you know, there has been a lot of regret from the EU27 about Brexit. Um, but I think essentially people have accepted it is happening. They're getting their exit divorce bill. And Europe has moved on. The union between France and Germany is now very different to where it was in June 2016. And for Britain to re-enter that fray, you know, would there be much appetite for that? Well, that's an enormously important question and one has to doubt it. As you quite rightly say, a lot of the energy now is around this whole question of Eurozone reform. You know, Macron has appointed himself in the kind of vanguard of of what Europe will, will turn into in its next sort of incarnation. And actually, that's something of which Britain would never really have wanted to be a part, not just being outside the euro, but we don't have never had the sort of same vision of what the EU is is indeed for um, as those sort of core original nations. So even if we changed our mind, as it were, as, as Martin quite rightly said, we've kind of proved ourselves to be flaky. And would they want us back? And also, if we wanted to go back, we already had fantastic terms. You know, we had those crucial opt-outs on the euro, on Schengen. And asking to re-enter, we would be in an even worse, more subservient position than we are in these current negotiations. And that's the real problem, Martin. You know, what would be on that ballot paper, as you've said, because obviously there was the deal David Cameron negotiated, which was not insubstantial. I know it was rubbished very quickly during the referendum, but there were some crucial reforms there for Britain's place. Would it be that deal? You know, who knows? Would it be going back to where we were before he negotiated that? Or would we have to give something up? You know, there's been talk that if Britain was coming back in, it would have to, you know, take more European rules, maybe Schengen, maybe the Euro. And of course, at that point, you're into fantasy land. There's no way I think British voters would ever begin to accept that. The very best would be where we were. And the truth is, this is what I would say. I think the idea, and there are lots of legal and other complexities, but the idea that we would have, to say, the referendum in February, it votes 51 to 49 against the deal we our government then says okay we withdraw our application to leave they say rubbish to that um we say well why don't you go to the european court of justice which will take months and months to to agree this by which time we've left and i think the ecj would say well if the 27 nations really don't want this we're not going to have it so we wouldn't know what we would be voting for by voting against the deal so it wouldn't be any clearer We would have to have a third referendum. Uh, The truth is, as you said, 
Water has gone under the bridge. Once it was the great um, Greek philosopher said, Heraclitus says, you can't step into the same river twice. That river has passed, as it were. The, the world is now different. Unfortunately, we made the decision to have a referendum. We made the decision to leave. And that's what we're stuck with. It's funny to put something to both of you on to end with. You know, one thing that Martin said is we're still a deeply divided society. And I think that we are in some respect and that, you know, there's a lot of unrequited people, Miranda, who still hate this like Martin does. And will and will probably be a little bit bitter about it for, for some years to come. How do you go about trying to bring that together? Because obviously there's the Brexit strategy Theresa May's government has taken is a, the most hardest Brexit you could think of, except from a no deal Brexit. And I don't think the government would ever really seriously encounter that because it would be so much of a risk. You know, if we do stay in the customs union, that is a slightly softer Brexit. Do you see that something eventually that if we do end up with that form, people will coalesce around and people just get on with it? And in the manner Mark suggests, we just tread a new course? Um, I think there's a chance of that because most people would probably want a constructive compromise or would accept it to the extent that they stop being upset about it, uh, excessively upset about it. I think what's in parallel happened to our politics and the polarisation there, if we end up with a compromise, it's a gift to UKIP if they could get their act together. So you'll still have those voices crying betrayal on that side of it. And you will also have the never say die Romaniacs on the other side. But I think the centre of politics, um, I mean, the centre is absent in so many uh, senses at the moment, but there will be a lot of acceptance of a compromise in the centre. How you try and heal the kind of broader cultural divisions that seem to have raised their head since the referendum and in the light of the kind of culture wars that are dominating politics across the developed world now, that's a much bigger question. I was just going to add that I think... We haven't even discussed the the still greater split in a way, and perhaps more fundamental, that will emerge in the next general election campaign between whoever will be the Conservative standard bearer with a lot of Brexiters, uh, right-wing Brexiters, and Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. And that's a whole new division and more profound than anything we've seen in this country politically, domestically, in my lifetime. We are a fundamentally divided society in a way on very many issues, not just Brexit, in a way that I have not experienced in my lifetime. And that's it for this week's episode of FD Politics. Thank you very much to Martin, Miranda, George and Sunder for joining us. If you want to hear even more about Brexit, then do check out our latest Brexit Unspun podcast with our Brussels Bureau Chief Alex Barker digging into the latest ruminations on the negotiations. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Joshua Oliver. Until next time, thanks for listening. The inexorable rise of China the changing nature of work, the future of liberal capitalism, the power of Silicon Valley, the world of artificial intelligence. Join Gideon Rachman, Sarah O'Connor, Martin Wolf, Rana Faruha and John Thornhill as they explore some of the most significant questions of our age in a new podcast, The FT Big Picture. To listen and subscribe, visit ft.com podcasts. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.